This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Okay. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. I am so, so happy um, that everybody's able to join us today for this conversation focused on how we should be as PIC abolitionists assessing the various police reform proposals that are currently circulating. My name is Mariam Kaba, and I am the founder and director of Project NIA. I'm co-founder of Survived and Punished and also co-founder of Interrupting Criminalization, Research in Action. Um, those of you who know me or know anything about me will know that I hate being on camera, so I will not be on camera for this call, but I will also have some slides so that you can pay attention to the slides and not me. Well, interpretation team that includes interpreters Brandon Kazen Maddox and Tristan. Today's event is co-sponsored by Critical Resistance, Project Nia, Survived and Punished, and Danae Vidal is our live captioner. So you should be able to enable live caption, reclaim the block, Black Visions Collective, and Haymarket Books. We're joined today by a wonderful ASM YouTube for this event. We're so, so grateful to all of them for being here and for allowing us to expand um, uh, language access for more people. We're also grateful to our comrades at HERD um, who helped us to secure some of the team members today. Um, there's nothing that we do that is worthwhile that we do alone. So we really, really are so grateful for all of our comrades who step up to support in various ways. Um, we are supported in the live streaming by Haymarket Books. I want to thank John for holding that down and Sean earlier for support. Also, Julie, who uh, offered the support in the first place. I want to thank Critical Resistance staff who are holding down our Zoom. Um, and I want to particularly thank Jess and Mohammed, And I want to thank Jay for their support today and making the event happen. Proceeds for uh, today's event will be donated to Mutual Aid Projects for Youth, mapforyouth.com. Um, Mutual Aid Projects for Youth is a project that started last summer um, that gave some uh, funds uh, up to $2,500 uh, to 14 young people between the ages of 12 to 24 so that they could do a mutual aid project over the summer. This year, some of the volunteers from that project are re-upping it again. Applications will be out sometime, I think, after the 17th of June. So, you know, young people between the ages of 12 to 24 invite them to apply. Through the generous donations that we've uh, been able to collect for this event, 
uh, nearly $60,000 will be able to be donated to all of those young people and contributed to their projects. And again, mutual, hate, mutual aid is having a moment in the pandemic, but uh, many of the folks on this call help a lot of young people actualize their visions um, for mutual aid projects. The chat function on YouTube, again, is available for those who want to use it, um, especially to drop in your questions. Someone will be collecting those so that we can answer a few of them during the Q&A at the end. So this afternoon, we are joined by four brilliant abolitionist thinkers, all and many of you who are part of watching and listening today um, know that, you know, mutual aid is longstanding, um, organizers and activists. Um, after I open and offer some grounding remarks, I will be followed by Kamal Walton, who's part of uh, Critical Resistance. And then um, Kamau will be followed by Dean Spade. And Dean is guru of all things, um, but has been doing a lot of work with Big Door Brigade uh, and, and their mutual aid work. Um, Woods Irvin will follow, and Woods is from Critical Resistance as well. And um, then we will end uh, at that first section with Kay Agbibi, um, who will um, uh, kind of close out that first section. Um, they will each introduce themselves when they offer their remarks, so I'm not going to spend time doing that now. And after each of them speaks, we'll take a short break for um, after their, each that first part is over, we'll take a short break of about five to seven minutes for stretching, getting water, get taken care of whatever needs you have. And then after that break, we'll be back to follow up with some remarks um, uh, that folks will be offering based on what they heard from other people that was inspiring to them or interesting to them or they wanted to add on to. And then we will close with some brief Q&A. And we plan to be done around 4 p.m. So again, thanks for joining. Um, and I'm going to kick us off. So um, right now, we're really in a historic moment brought on by the consistent exertion of people power across the country and really around the world. And this has brought us to a place where our communities are poised to win significant victories against the violence of policing on a large scale. To guide us in this moment, we need to hold central that abolition is both a vision and a political strategy. And part of this strategy is recognizing and actualizing that we cannot call for reforms that further entrench and legitimize policing in any form as a solution to social, economic, and political problems. As prison industrial complex abolitionists, the proposals we call for in our demands must be aimed at diminishing the political and social power of policing. So first, I think it's important for us to get grounded by opening with what we mean when we say PIC abolition. John, can you get the slide that starts with critical resistance on it? So critical resistance teaches us that prison industrial complex or PIC abolition is a political vision with the goal of eliminating imprisonment, policing, and surveillance and creating lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment. Abolition isn't just about getting rid of buildings full of cages. It's also about undoing the society we live in because the PIC both feeds on and maintains oppression 
and inequalities through punishment, violence, and controls millions of people. Because the PIC is not an isolated system, abolition is a broad strategy. An abolitionist vision means that we must build models today that can represent how we want to live in the future. It means developing practical strategies for taking small steps that move us towards making our dreams real and that lead us all to believe that things really could be different. It means living this vision in our daily lives. Abolition is both a practical organizing tool and a long-term goal. So I want to just um, kind of also share other people's uh, conceptualizations um, that some of those folks might be people you know and others might not be might be people you don't you know as well but um, I want to share some of their conceptualizations of abolition to further ground us so if you could move to the slide with Ruth Wilson Gilmore the purpose of abolition is to expose and defeat all the relationships and policies that make the United States the world's top cop, warmonger, and jailer. Abolition is a movement to end systemic violence, including the interpersonal vulnerabilities and displacements that keep the system going. In other words, the goal is to change how we interact with each other and the planet by putting people before profits, welfare before warfare, and life over death. Next slide. Ruthie also shares with us that abolition requires that we change one thing, which is everything. And that abolition is not absence, but presence. That it's a theory of change, it's a theory of social life, and it's about making things. And I always like to point out how incredibly important it is that um, we can be focused on the fact that, you know, all of these, uh, you know, concepts and ideas about abolition is that abolition is a dynamic framework, but abolition is also a positive project. And by positive, I don't, I'm not talking about good or bad. I'm saying it's a project that is a project of building and making and constantly iterating ideas and using our imaginations all the time. Um, it's one of the joys actually of being a PIC abolitionist that we can do all those things in the midst of also fighting against incredibly oppressive forces. Let's move to the next slide, Erica Miners. Abolition does not mean that people will not do bad things, but that our carceral state does little to reduce the occurrence of violence and harm and does nothing to alter the social and political conditions that potentially facilitate interpersonal violence. In short, an abolition politic excavates core or root causes of violence masked by the carceral regime. And the final slide on this end is Eric Stanley's words about abolition that I think are important in this moment particularly. A tiring critique of prison abolition that can make even a self-identified radical sound like a mouthpiece for the right is that if we have, that is that if we abolish the PIC, we will all be subject to greater risks of harm 
In response to this assertion, it is important to note at least two related points. First, the most dangerous, violent people in our society are not in prison, but are running our military, government, prisons, and banks. Secondly, what we have now, even for people who have caused harm, is a form of non-accountability where the survivors of a violation are often harmed again through the desires of a district attorney whose only interest is conviction rates. Anyone who has been deposed or been through a trial can attest to this. Abolition is not simply about letting everyone out of prison, as our critics like to suggest, although that would be an important component. It is forged in the work of daring to ask what true accountability, justice, and safety might look like and feel like, and what are the ways we might build our world. So now, so violence in all its forms is decreased rather than something that we only attend to post-infraction. Those are a lot of words to say, as Woods Irvin does, that abolition is not just a goal, but a politic, practice, and framework we utilize to approach structural change. Move to the next slide, please, on the case for police abolition. Since we're in a moment right now where we're really thinking about the abolition of prisons, policing, and surveillance, I want to kind of talk and drill down a little bit on some thoughts about police abolition. That's in the air quite a bit right now. And this is with thanks to my comrade, Brandon McQuaid, who uh, wrote a book just last year called Pacifying the Homeland, uh, Intelligence, Fusion, and Mass Supervision. And I think it's a book everybody should read. So if you get a chance to look at it, pick that up. We can dramatically reduce policing now because policing is not about crime control. I'm going to say that again. We can dramatically reduce policing now because policing is not about crime control. Criminal law enforcement is actually not a major part of actual existing police work. The vast majority of calls to police do not pertain to criminal matters. Less than a third of a police officer's on-duty work is crime-related. About eight out of 10 incidents handled by police are considered by the police themselves as non-criminal matters. The percentage of police effort devoted to violations of criminal law may not even exceed 10%. As little as 6% of a patrol officer's time is spent on incidents that ultimately turn out to be criminal offenses. On average, police officers in the U.S. arrest one person every two weeks. One study found that among 156 officers assigned to a high crime area of New York City, 40% did not make a single felony arrest in a year. So police do not do the work that people think they do. And I think this is critically important as we're talking about the abolition of policing, that folks actually understand the role and what police's purposes are and what they actually do, right? This is incredibly important in our work as we think through a world that's police-free. Police cannot be reformed. This is important because the essence of their power is the discretion to use violence, the ability to decide whether or not to use violence in any conceivable situation. The reasons for the most basic police interaction, the stop, have never been clear. Walking too fast, 
walking too slowly, being stationary are all grounds for a stop. This should be in the next slide. I don't know if you moved that over already, John, but yeah. Um, and, and have always been used unfairly and unequally. The courts have always refused to define discretion because to define discretion would be to limit police. Discretion isn't just individual decision-making. It's also organizational and institutional. The courts have consistently refused to provide any quote-unquote predetermined restrictions on what police can't do in any situation. The courts won't even tell cops they can't drop a bomb on a building as they did in Philadelphia in, 18, in 1985 or use a robot to kill someone with a bomb as they did in Dallas in 2016. They won't limit police discretion because you can never tell police ahead of time what is, quote, reasonable or, quote, necessary, since all situations are always and forever unpredictable. So what is police? Discretion or the expression of state power as administrative executive prerogative to act as seen fit. And I think this is a really important point that people don't really think about enough, which is why is it that the police actually cannot be reformed? And this gives us an opening to think about that as being the fact is that the essence of their power is the discretion to use violence and that no courts actually can in any way or do in any way limit that. So how are we going to reform an institution that basically has the ability to decide whether or not to use violence in any conceivable situation and is sanctioned by the state to do so? Next slide. Yes. Police do not enforce the law and are not accountable to it. And I don't want to go into this too deeply, but the key thing to think about here is that police handle the law after the fact to justify the way that they decided to restore order. So policing is order maintenance rather than law enforcement. And I don't want to get into, you know, too much details around this, but that's also an important factor to keep in mind when abolitionists talk about why we just cannot, you know, reform the police or policing cannot be reformed. It's because of those key factors that I'm just mentioning in the now. Um, let's go to the slide for Harsha Walia. So where does this leave us in this moment? Um, Harsha Walia, who is a writer and organizer, posted on their Facebook page earlier this week that we should be remembering key questions when assessing if reforms enhance freedom or enhance policing. And the questions that Harsha puts on the line are, does it increase money to police? Does it reduce the scale of policing? And does it delink police from ideas of safety? These three questions, I think, are excellent openings uh, to assess some of the proposals currently being advanced. And there are more questions um, than these ones, and they will be addressed by other panelists as the conversation proceeds. Next slide about San Jose. Thank you. Finally, it's important to raise the pitfalls and challenges of this moment. I'll do that by sharing the following image that people may be seeing by the San Jose Police Department that I saw on social media yesterday. 
We have to be vigilant as co-option is running rampant, as it is clear that we aren't actually all working on the same larger project, and as protests will eventually subside. You can see the way that the San Jose uh, police has taken the eight can't wait checked, put check marks on all eight things that they like kind of checked off, like, you know, children getting an A on a spelling test. However, if you go and look at the statistics of the San Jose Police Department, you will see that they continue to kill people, and particularly that they continue to kill black and brown people, and even more particularly that they kill black people regularly. You'll see that, and it also indigenous folks who are, you know, disproportionately targeted and harmed by police violence. Also keeping in mind that the people who are most at risk of police uh, killings and injury are people with various forms of various disabilities. So all these things happening. San Jose has not ended the violence of policing, even though they picked these eight things that they say they are like checkmark A's on. So in this tumultuous and creative moment, more than ever, we need clarity. We need to hold the line on PAC abolition. And I really, really want to throw over to Kamau, who will be talking about a resource that criminal, Critical Resistance developed to help us assess which proposals to support or to oppose in our abolitionist organizing. Kamau, you're up. Thanks, Miriam. Um, so yes, yeah, thanks everybody for getting on this call. My name is Kamau. I've been a member of Critical Resistance for the last 10 years, um, and I'm excited to get into this chart and talk about how we chip away at policing. So the, the reformist reforms versus abolitionist steps in policing chart um, was actually started from our critical resistance communications director, Mohammed, um, who read a blog post that Miriam Kaba made. So shout out to Miriam for getting all of this going. Um, the chart was created in early 2018 to um, support people wanting to organize, to help folks think strategically about how to do anti-policing work um, and what that can actually look like. So these questions that are laid out on the chart, they can be used to assess other reforms, not just the ones that are included on here. Um, we hear a lot of conversations about body cameras, about community policing or community control of policing, more training, more cultural competency, um, more bias trainings, um, and jailing killer cops and civilian review boards, all of those things. And we know that a lot of those things have been put into place. Um, after the Ferguson uprisings, there was a whole wave of 21st century policing that included a lot of these false solutions. Um, and these are what we call reformist reforms. And so the chart is meant to help us think through what are the wins, what are the strategies that we use to actually chip away at the power of policing and bring more community control and self-determination into the places where we live. Um, so it can be used to think about other reforms, not just on here, um, and to Think about reforms, whether they're large or small. Um, I know in different places in the country, folks are taking action all over the place, right? Um, but the political landscape might look different depending on where you're at. So it's also important to think about the scale and even small things that are helping us to chip away at the prison industrial complex and at policing in particular can help us 
um, set the tone so that future work can move even more wins and bring even more people on our side. So it's an important tool to use to think both in the short term and right now and in the long term about how we're chipping away at policing and the prison industrial complex as a whole. Um, this is also something, these questions can be used to think about how we're using language when we're talking about the prison industrial complex, when we're talking about policing. So when we say over-policing, um, does that mean that we're does that mean that we're actually challenging the idea of policing as a whole? Or are we just saying we need less of it? Um, what we're actually talking about is policing as a whole. So over-policing um, doesn't challenge the notion that police increase safety. Um, over-policing just says we need a little bit less and then it will be okay. Um, when we're talking about police accountability, when we're talking about like the, the calls to jail killer cops, it's still legitimizing other parts of the prison industrial complex, other aspects of policing. Um, and so it's important that we're thinking when we're saying these things, when we're talking about this work, does it reduce the funding to police? Does it change the notion that police increase safety? Does it reduce the tools, the tactics, the technology that police have at their disposal? Are we taking away their resources? And does it reduce the scale of policing? Um, and I think with this charge and in looking at some of the other stuff that's going to be mentioned in the conversation, um, it's important to note that being consistent about how we're talking about this stuff um, clearly helps folks to imagine an abolitionist future. And it helps us to combat a lot of the co-optation that we're already seeing that Miriam named with the San Jose Police Department that we've seen with some of the new federal legislation that's coming out and things in different states around what techniques are going to be banned, um, what training is going to happen that's still funneling more funding towards the police. And so with this chart, it's checking some of those liberal um, or neoliberal efforts to continue to expand the prison industrial complex. Um, and it names a few ideas, but there are a multitude of ways that we can be chipping away at policing. And so I think whether we're asking ourselves these questions right now, or we're doing it in a month or in a year, um, it's important to use tools like this and some of the other resources that are gonna be named um, from folks like Kay with Aid to Abolition and with Woods and Dean um, to ground ourselves in not just what is being called for in the moment, but what the implications of these things are in the long term. So how are we making sure that we're creating wins and space for ourselves to move closer to abolition, um, not just in this moment, but in the future? How are we making room for more and more um, concrete abolitionist wins that are going to chip away at policing, at imprisonment, at state-sanctioned surveillance, at the court systems that criminalize and cage our people? Um, and make those connections because we do want to talk about policing. This is the opportunity in this moment and police snatch people up and take them to prison. Police snatch people up and they have to go through the court system. There's also this really important piece um, to think about when we're talking about like body cameras, but also um, more broadly, as we see police 
being defunded in different parts of the country, making sure that what replaces that is actually community controlled um, safety practices, systems, and institutions. So whether it's body cameras or more state surveillance on a, on a broader level, we have to be asking these questions around, does this reduce police funding? Does this challenge the notion that policing, that surveillance, that imprisonment increases safety? Um, and so the abolition of steps in policing chart is a starting point. And after we start talking about policing, let's broaden it out to the prison industrial complex as a whole. Um, and let's continue to assess how our wins are actually making room for us to continue to chip away at the prison industrial complex. Thank you so much, Kamal. Um, we're gonna go and have Dean next. Thanks, Miriam, and thanks, Kamal, and, and to the interpreters and the captioner and the organizers. This is a really needed conversation. Um, Miriam asked me to focus in this time on some of the questions that I've used for thinking about assessing reforms generally, right? Um, I think as, as we're already seeing from what Miriam and Kamal shared, um, you know, we live in a time where uh, public officials love to tell us they've already solved our problem, and they love to find a way to solve our problems that changes as little as possible. That's their goal. Their goal is always with reform to demobilize us and to tell us it's it's solved. And they've been doing this around the crisis of policing and people's opposition to racist policing for a really, really long time. This isn't the first round of this um, where we've seen um, proposed reforms that we could say like aren't going to work. And so it's really important for us to, um, to, to figure out how to assess that. So um, Miriam asked me to um, specifically look at the kind of proposal that's coming from Joe Biden to put $300 million towards community policing, which is a really confused and confusing term, a very misleading term in the world of, um, of police reforms. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Um, and I just want to recommend to people, if you want to learn more about what community policing has been and what's wrong with it, because it's, it's been a proposed and a, an enacted long-term reform in response to opposition to policing, um, I would really recommend the anthology that's called Policing the Planet, which is free right now as an ebook on the Verso Books website. And I asked Jess to put it into the chat. Um, but so basically, what just to tell you for a second what community policing has been and is, um, in case that's unfamiliar. It sounds good because it's got the word community in it, but it's not good. Um, it's often also associated with two other terms, quality of life policing and broken windows policing. So you might hear any of those three. Um, and basically, it's, um, it's portrayed as like a milder um, form of policing, but actually it's kind of an enhancement and expansion of policing. So, um, it's a big goal of community policing, which you can find, like, if you look at like when Obama was funding community policing or any of the government um, websites about this is to enhance trust in police and legitimacy of police. So it's about making people think the police are different than what they are, right? It's a PR strategy is a, is a lot of what it is. And what it includes is things like cops putting on barbecues in the neighborhood, adding more cops to schools and programs that are supposed to like con connect the community to the police and um, hiring police of color is sometimes part of it. Um, but it's also things like drastically increasing the types of things that police will arrest or ticket people for. So this is the whole quality of life thing. It's like, we need to get rid of graffiti and panhandling and subway fare jumping. And um, there's an idea that 
if the police address all these tiny um, signs of disorder, it'll enhance um, people's quality of life in the community and that this is what communities want. So this is this aspect of community policing is really this drastic enhancement of the amount of contact police are having with people and the kinds of things that they're ticketing and arresting them for. Um, you know, when we, when, when the Ferguson um, rebellion kicked off, we heard a lot about how much the city of Ferguson relied on this kind of fining and ticketing for um, revenue. So that's also another part of it is really bleeding the community for money in addition to um, locking people up, doing a lot of stopping and frisking. Um, and we can see that a lot of well-known police deaths come from these kinds of contact, right? Akai Gurley um, died at the hands of cops who were assigned to um, patrol the public housing unit. Tamir Rice died at the hands of cops who were assigned to um, patrol the park. Um, Eric Garner died at the hands of cops who were enforcing these like very minor infractions about selling untaxed cigarettes, right? Um, Breonna Taylor died at the hands of cops who were enforcing drug laws, right? Zero tolerance policies are part of this kind of policing. Okay, so that's what community policing is. It's not new. Joe Biden didn't invent it. It's a long-term um, strategy for expanding police. Um, so let's, if, if you don't mind bringing up the slide, John, I'll just share with you these four questions Mary asked me to share that I use for assessing reforms. And we can look at them in terms of community policing. So the first criteria is, and whenever we're assessing reforms is, does it provide material relief? Like, is it going to actually change the stuff people are getting hurt by on the ground? And so with community policing, this isn't a hard one, right? Because it's actually, if we provide more money to the cops, we're actually going to have more harm from cops. And if we provide barbecues, that definitely won't reduce the harms people experiencing from policing, right? If we want barbecues in our communities, there's like a lot of other ways we could have those happen, right? Um, yeah. So does it provide material relief is the first basic question because so many crappy reforms are just symbolic. So we always want to ask that question. Is it even going to get anybody any of the stuff that we're worried about, that we're complaining about? The second question is um, about whether it leaves out um, marginalized groups. Can we have this slide back up? You don't mind? Um, whether it leaves out marginalized groups. So a lot of times a reform you know, will offer help to the people who are the least stigmatized. You see this, and a good example of this is let's get relief for nonviolent um, offenders, those kinds of things. And so the most stigmatized people are still going to be stuck with the worst experiences and the least stigmatized people um, are, are maybe a few of them might get some relief. We never want to do that because it creates the idea of deserving and undeserving groups of people inside our um, communities, inside affected groups. Um, and it actually strengthens the rationale for punishing and harming people um, who are cast as undeserving, right? And the same groups are always most likely to be cast as undeserving, as we know. Um, so I think with community policing, um, yeah, I think it's it's uh, it, it doesn't just leave out the undeserving. It, it generally leaves out everybody since it doesn't actually reduce the harm of police since it increases funding to police um, so that we don't even really have to get to this question. But I think it's a useful question to ask with any reforms um, or any um, offered concessions by governments that are supposed to help with our problems. The third question is, does it legitimize or expand a system we're trying to dismantle? Community policing definitely does both of those, right? It's a rebrand. It's trying to tell us that the cops are here to connect with us and make us safe and happy, which is absurd. And it's also literally about adding funding. And it's, you know, Joe Biden's offering as a strategy that was it's already been a failed strategy offered by 
prior administrations. So that's something we always want to say no to. Um, another example I might give of this here in Seattle on Duwamish land where I live, uh, the mayor, one of the concessions she is suggesting is she wants to get a special independent prosecutor appointed at the state level to investigate when the police use deadly force. That expands the system and legitimizes it. It doesn't do anything to prevent the deaths, right? We know that prosecuting more people doesn't, doesn't reduce uh, um, police violence. So, um, and then the final question in this list of criteria for reforms is about how it was won, right? We know that any reform that's emerging, um, any reform that's emerging is a reform that um, well, is it, isn't getting us all the way to the world we're building yet. So anything that's a step along the way, we're trying to assess, hey, is this going in the direction we're trying to go? Or is this not going in the direction we're trying to go? And in fact, maybe even expanding the things we're trying to dismantle. So the final part of this isn't just the content of the reform, but also how did we get it? Did we build people power along the way that will help us get to the next steps, right? Did we actually increase our capacity to mobilize ultimately hundreds of millions of people for the kinds of change we want to see, the drastic kinds of change we want to see to, to uh, eliminate this, the, the violence that um, we live under, right? So, um, so that's a really important question. I want to just note that right now, we're seeing this really important moment of rebellion against police violence. Um, and you know, inevitably, the elites will offer elite solutions. They'll say, oh, no, don't worry about it. You guys go back home. You guys, you know, keep it, you know, keep it still. We're just going to offer you our solution. Elite solutions are designed to demobilize us. And they're often just concessions. They're going to give us as little as they can give us um, to kind of put people away, to make people become quiet. Um, but in fact, the bolder we are in our strategies of mobilization and disruption, the more we get, right? And that's the way concessions work, right? And so they want to say like, no, we've got it taken care of, like the example Maren gave of the San Jose police, we've got it taken care of, go home, nothing's wrong. We've done everything right, right? Meanwhile, we continue um, to do uh, the same kinds of harm. So this is a really sneaky thing. And I just want to name that right now, there's a lot of discourse about peaceful protests that I'd really like us all to eliminate. Because what that does is it tells people that the government gets to decide who are the protesters who should be criminalized and who's not. And it, get, and it tells us that we should follow all the rules and not be too disruptive um, to get what we want. And that's just the actual opposite of how change actually works. Um, so those are the four questions that I think are useful for looking at um, reforms coming up in a lot of contexts, including police reform um, that is emerging. Um, I just want to name that here in Seattle, where I live, um, we have a, a, a defund campaign that you can find at decriminalizeseattle.com. Um, and our defund demands are, are just three. Defund the police, reallocate all those funds to things people actually need, and release all the protesters who've been arrested during um, this uprising. Um, and our mayor, on the, on the reverse, has offered up some really different suggestions. For example, she thinks we need this independent prosecutor. Um, she wants to say that there will be no charges filed against peaceful protesters. So like, it's hard to believe that that will have any material relief because they get to decide who they think are peaceful. right? They get to name that. Um, and uh, and you know, she has some specific ideas about chokeholds, like limits on certain kinds of harm that cops can do. 
um, which feel really absurd to people because, of course, cops are lawless and they don't follow their own policies and rules. And so why would we believe that adding more laws and policies and rules about how they can harm people and what kinds of force they can use would work? Um, so I think that's just a kind of typical example in a, in a city like where I'm living, where you see defunding and dismantling is our goal. And then the concessions being offered by our politicians are these really thin... Um, system affirming reforms. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for this conversation. I think it's essential for us right now. And I hope this is uh, somewhat useful for people's work in, um, in pushing for abolition. Thank you, Dean. Woods, you're next. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Woods Irvin, and I use they, them pronouns. Um, I'm a member of Critical Resistance. Um, I want to start by saying that Critical Resistance is a national volunteer member-led campaign and project-based organization. So because the prison industrial complex is so complex, um, we know that it manifests differently according to location and scale. Um, so CR is organized into local chapters, uh, which is where most of our work happens. Um, so critical resistance entered this moment with some pretty strong campaign and coalition work uh, coming off of last year's win against the largest police militarization training program in the world, Urban Shield in the Bay Area. Um, we also helped win a decade-long campaign against a proposed mental health jail in Los Angeles. So after stopping the construction of a new jail in San Francisco in 2016, we won a huge victory this year and pushed the Board of Supervisors to commit to shutting down an existing jail. This vote was secured in or continued organizing pressure on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors um, to release currently incarcerated people during COVID-19, as many of our comrades inside have been falling ill. So abolition is a winning strategy. And as we're seeing from organizing that has been occurring prior to this moment, whether against jailing in jailing in jails in Atlanta or policing in New York or Minneapolis, when we use abolitionist praxis, we win. It's super exciting that in this moment, exponentially more people are understanding abolition as a practical organizing tool and a winning strategy, in addition to a long-term vision. We at CR are super juiced to share that we're working, what, what we're working on in the, the moment and to coordinate to, to, with more and more comrades, old and new, on the road with abolition. So as to what CR is doing in the moment, so we're meeting the moment in three ways, um, with a variety of political education, ongoing campaign work, and projects. I'm gonna walk you through a number of pieces of work. If anything sparks your interest, you can check out our website to learn more and apply it to your local context. So in regards to our political education, we're continuing our sessions on the prison industrial complex, abolition, and policing abolition, um, specifically to continue to develop popular understanding of abolition as more people enter this moment and want to understand more of how to do this work. We're having a Juneteenth event tomorrow with Charlene Carruthers and Mark Lamont Hill, where they'll situate PIC abolition in the Black radical tradition. If you haven't gotten your tickets, you should definitely do that. 
um, there's a link on the CR website to the Eventbrite, Eventbrite page to do so. So as mentioned earlier, we're releasing a second version. Oh, actually, maybe Kamal didn't say, but we are in the works of releasing a second version of the chart on policing abolition. So um, be on the lookout for that. Um, we're putting together abolitionist educator events to support some of the thinking and campaign work about getting cops out of schools occurring around the country. We held one on June 2nd about shifting teaching during the pandemic. And the next one is on Tuesday, June 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Um, the conversation will feature longtime organizing partner, the Black Organizing Project, um, who are fighting to get cops out of schools in Oakland. So under the heading of campaign work, um, our Oakland chapter is preparing to launch an assessment of policing in Oakland to strengthen local, local organizing efforts around defunding the Oakland Police Department. Our Portland chapter just made a huge step in their campaign and have gotten commitments from decision makers to disband the anti-gang unit of the Portland Police Bureau. Um, in the midst of this momentum, the city of Portland has also agreed to end both school police and transit police, which is amazing. Um, while we're also meeting the moment around policing more broadly, um, as we've been saying, we're a PIC abolitionist, so we continue our strong work around jails. Our Oakland chapter is working in San Francisco to reduce the jail population as we move toward implementation of closing the SF jail in November. Um, the chapter is also mo is moving toward a strategy of participatory defense campaigns to accomplish, accomplish this. Um, and um, in Los Angeles, um, our LA chapter has been organizing as part of Justice LA Coalition, um, which last year defeated plans for two new jails in LA County. Right now, CRLA is working to build up an anti-policing campaign. So to round us out, I'd like to briefly highlight some of the projects we're working on. We're, we're continuing to be in principal struggle with um, folks inside via our prisoner co correspondence program so that they know more about the rebellion taking place and the demand to de defund police. And we can continue to support them during this shift in the moment. We're continuing to raise and distribute funds through a mutual aid fund called the Zachary Project, named after our Oakland member, Zachary Ontiveros, who we lost in 2015. And we're still plugging away on the Oakland Power Projects, which is an anti-policing project to grow the capacities and muscles of everyday community members in Oakland to not rely on police and to turn, to turn to community-based resources. Our first project was helping community members develop capacity to respond to mental health, drug overdose, and medical-related emergencies without the cops. This project has been circulated as an example as part of alternatives to policing in a variety of defund po police campaigns. Um, so, and then we're also currently in the process of building an abolitionist network. Um, the Abolitionist Network is a recently convened group of abolitionist organizations from across the country who are engaging in developing abolitionist praxis and projects. The organizations that are currently a part of it include Black Visions Collective, 
Reclaim the Block, Survived and Punished, All of Us or None, BYP 100, The Red Nation, Southerners on New Ground, and Drum. This is the moment to make these demands real, and that happens at the local level. How, how are we going to move people to get what they want? This is the question we have to engage. And we have to do it rigorously. This is especially important as cities everywhere are approving their budgets for the year and the political, economic, and social terrain continues to shift. Take this opportunity to organize, pressure your decision makers, organize actions, mobilize to your city budget, your city's budget hearings, ensure that spending on police is slashed and defunded, and that community resources are invested in before the budget is approved. We have to keep fighting until we win, using every tool and strategy at our disposal. Toward that end, I want to be sure to share a list of materials that CRs built from the learnings around the campaigns and projects we've done over the years. Um, so CR has a detailed text on how to defeat gang injunctions um, that we produced as part of our campaign from 2011. We can circulate that to everyone who registered for the call. Um, you can find out more about the Stop the Injunctions Coalition website, which is still up. Um, and so that's going to be at Stop the Injunctions at WordPress.com. Okay, so you can find out how we stopped Urban Shield um, at StopUrbanShield.org. Um, there's a video that gives a nice sort of a summary of that. Um, release the link as well. Um, for information on our fight to close the SF jail, um, you can look. Um, at the nonewsfjail.org website. Um, you can check out how we developed the Oakland Power Projects as well as our workshops and a variety of safety tools at oaklandpowerprojects.org. And you can check out the resource on how to fight a jail at the California News United for a Responsible Budget website. Um, CURB is a statewide formation in California that both our Oakland and LA chapters organized within. Um, you can find that at curbprisonspending.org. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Woods, for taking us through that. Um, we are gonna throw it to Kay. Uh, Kay, you're on. Hi. <laughs> Um, so I'm Kay Abbey. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a macro social worker and an organizer, and I'm currently based in New York. Um, in New York, I'm in several abolitionist groups, but um, I consider Survived and Punished New York chapter my political home. In SP, we're working to free criminalized survivors of gender based sexual and domestic violence. Um, outside of Survived and Punished, I'm also a co creator of 8toabolition.com which um, started off as a website and a graphic, which is, and it's now turned into a rallying cry um, that has pretty much taken off across the country within about a week. Um, the great thing about 8toabolition.com is just that it's really empowered people to push back against reformist visions for the world and ask for what we actually deserve, which is a world without cops and a world where our community can be safe and thriving um, without fear of 
harm from the state. AidToAbolition.com began when Mon Mahatra put out a call for organizers, writers, and designers um, who wanted to work on, I guess, a short abolitionist campaign to fight back against to uh, fight back against Eight Can't Wait. And Eight Can't Wait is a set of police reforms that was put forth by Campaign Zero. And the premise behind Eight Can't Wait is if cities implement these eight reforms, um, death from police violence will go down by 72%. Um, without even getting into our ethical um, objections to this, uh, several data scientists on Twitter and uh, across the country pointed out that the data was wrong and the 72% figure um, just relied on faulty numbers. But the main reason that we wanted to fight back against Eight Can't Wait is because we understand that reformist reforms um, actually expand the carceral state instead of shrinking it. And as abolitionists, our work is in shrinking the prison industrial complex. Not only do they expand the carceral state, they limit our imagination. And we thought it was really important in a moment like this when so many people are getting activated and politicized that we let people know that there are abolitionists out there who are working in their cities and in their communities to do something about policing in a way that's actually going to be sustainable long-term. We also noticed that the reforms named by the Eight Can't Wait campaign are already implemented in several places where instances of police violence and death have already happened. For example, in New York, chokeholds are already banned, um, but Eric Garner passed away after he was murdered by police when they used a chokehold on him. So not only do we see that these reforms limit our imagination, they, they let certain places off of the hook. We don't know who's going to actually make sure that the cops are accountable to the laws. And by putting these eight laws in place, all we're doing is just putting a Band-Aid on the solution or putting a Band-Aid in place of a solution. Another reason that we thought that Eight to Abolition was important was we saw that cops and police departments were celebrating Eight Can't Wait. And as abolitionists, we know that if cops are celebrating a reform, then it's not getting us closer to our goal, which is a world without prisons. And we're not working to just stop 72% of police violence, we're working to stop 100% of police violence and all aspects of the prison industrial complex. It's amazing to be on this panel today because so much of our work and our site has been influenced by critical resistance and Miriam's work, especially with the chart that Kamal went over, um, because the chart really breaks down just how harmful reforms are, and you're able to question whether or not something is actually getting you closer to your goal. So we looked at the chart and it informed a lot of our work, and then we created the site. Um, the eight components of Aid to Abolition are defund the police, demilitarize communities, remove cops from schools, free people from jails and prisons, repeal laws that criminalize survivors, invest in community self-governance, provide safe housing, and invest in care, not cops. We knew that these goals are not all-encompassing, but they're actually reflective of our own personal organizing. For example, we have people within our collective who are working on freeing criminalized survivors and also people who are fighting back against jail building in their cities. Our main goal, since it was the site was mainly created in 24 hours, was just to 
get awareness out about abolition. We didn't expect for this to become a long-term campaign or even a guide for people. We just recognize this as a starting point for people to look at and to build upon. And we're really excited that so many people have. If you can go to the next slide, that'd be great. Um, so yeah, like I was saying, we started really small with several of the creators working together on a Google Doc. And we then took all of our writing and shared it with two of the designers on the team. And the site was born in 24 hours. Since launching, the site has taken off. People are mentioning the campaign in their city council meetings. They're handing out flyers at protests and they're pasting up posters in their communities. Um, people are talking about it on Twitter and also emailing people about the campaign or the website. And that's been really exciting. Can you go to the next slide, please? We have over 20 translations in work um, in the works right now. And then we also have a black and white zine, which is going to be sent to our comrades on the inside. I think the most meaningful part of the campaign has just been people reaching out to their parents to ask for translations. And through that, it's been a great process of like bringing us closer to our relatives and also making this a multi-generational campaign. And then also um, we're radicalizing communities that we previously didn't have access to. We've also gotten a lot of good feedback on accessibility and we're make, working to make sure that the site is as accessible as possible, especially for people who are visually impaired. We've also talked about abolition with several press outlets and that's been great too, um, because we've been able to spread abolition far and wide. I questioned why Eight to Abolition took off a couple days ago and I think it was just one of those moments where the stars collided People were tired of seeing the same demands that they had seen in the past five or six years. And our site was something that laid out complex ideas clearly. And it was something that people were new to, who were new to abolition could go to for talking points. We're still making minor changes to the site, but we're hoping to leave it as is because we just really want this to be a starting point and not something that um, people just read and think they know everything there is to know about abolition. We're so excited that this movement, this website has taken off, um, but we know the work doesn't stop there. And we hope this can be a useful tool for abolitionist organizers or people who are learning more. And we're excited to have you join us. Thank you, Kay. Um, so very happy that you were able to hear from Kamau, Dean, um, and um, Woods and Kay, and really grateful for everybody's um, contributions and thoughts and the ways that they're helping us to think through the questions that we need to be really focused on as we're making assessments for ourselves in our organizing around which proposals to support and which not to support. Um, this live stream will continue to be up even after this, so folks can go back. I know my understanding from the chat is that there's some issues around um, folks being able to see the slides because they're not big enough. But hopefully if you get a chance to come back later and look at them again, you'll be able to see them. But also all of the materials, um, the chart, et cetera, that we wanted to share with you here um, were already uh, emailed 
uh, through the Eventbrite and we will send resources at the end again. So you'll be able to have those to use. They're also all available on people's websites to freely download. So I want to make sure that you know that as well. Um, we're going to take a break. Um, it is uh, almost 3.05. And we're right on our time. We're going to take a seven-minute break for folks to stretch, get water, take care of any needs. We're going to come back at 3.12. And everybody is going to um, be able to kind of respond to what they heard from other people, bring up points they want to, they didn't get to finish and want to amplify. Um, and then we will be heading into Q&A. Um, so, yeah, come back at 3.12. We'll see you soon. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. Um, and we are going to continue with our conversation. Um, and in this part, I was we were just thinking that um, folks would respond to something they may have heard from somebody else that they wanted to riff off of or a reflection they had or a thought they wanted to finish. Um, and we're going to kick off this part with Kay, who went last who's going to come up first for this part of the conversation. Kay, take it away. Hi. Yeah, I decided to go first because I'm no longer nervous. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I just wanted to talk about a lot of the conversation that's been happening around um, people asking for uh, cops who have murdered people to be jailed or incarcerated. And... Um, I think it's really um, difficult, I think, for abolitionists to pull people in um, during what is such a traumatic and uh, heartbreaking time, but also explain why um, incarcerating cops doesn't get us closer to our goal um, of a world without the prison industrial complex. So that's just been something that I've been grappling with. And I think that the critical resistance chart and then also Miriam's work have made it easier for me to explain to people clearly um, just why we need to be working to shrink the PIC instead of expanding it. Um, and yeah, I think that it's something that we need to talk about more because a lot of people are saying like, well, I support ending prisons, but until that happens, I think that cops should be incarcerated. And another reason why it's so painful for me to hear that personally is because we work with criminalized survivors, people who are incarcerated daily. And just hearing that this idea that jail is a place for bad people perpetuates so much harm on other people. And so I think that's something that we really need to work through right now is bringing people in, but also being clear about our views and letting people know that abolition means abolition for everyone, even people that we strongly dislike. Thank you, Kay, for that. Does anybody have something you want to um, kind of add to what Kay just said? Because there are questions in the chat around, and I'm just going to go to one of the questions right now that somebody asked, which was, um, yeah, how do we reconcile the desire for long-term PIC abolition with the desire to have justice in specific cases of police violence? How do we respond to calls to jail killer cops? I know Kamau, um, I know Woods, I know Dean, you've all thought about this. Can you weigh in, expanding on what Kay was talking about? Anybody? Yeah, I can start off and then see what other folks want to add. 
Um, so I think when, uh, when we're talking about the prison industrial complex, when we're talking about public safety, and when we're talking about justice, we have been offered a very limited definition of what those things mean, what they look like, and who can create those things for us. Um, I think there has been this um, divorcing of people and communities from our ability to define what safety and what justice looks like for us. And it has been invested into police and prisons, surveillance and courts. Um, and so I think when we're, when we're talking about um, what that looks like based on what's offered right now, um, for a lot of people, it makes sense that to them, justice looks like putting a person in a cage. But when we're talking about abolition, yeah. we are trying to address the root causes of the harm of the violence that is that is showing up in our communities. Um, so whether we're talking about uh, a cop who has murdered a person or a person that has like stolen something from a store, you put that person in a cage um, and then what? Um, how have their material conditions shifted? How are they going to be transformed in the process of being forced to live in a cage for X amount of time? Um, what does punishment actually do to shift our behaviors? We know that these systems have not ever worked for us and they will not work for us. And so I think the challenge in this time, because it's not like every abolitionist has a like, this is the blanket solution for how all of this stuff needs to look, um, is the challenge for us as individuals in our communities, with our networks of friends, of family, of organizers, of people we're building political home with, um, to imagine more wildly what this world could look like. So um, I think there's there's room to lend solidarity to families who have lost loved ones. I think the anti-police terror project in Oakland um, has built out a really intricate network of support for families who um, have experienced harm and violence at the hands of police, who have lost loved ones at the hands of police. Um, and that looks like a lot of different things. That looks like healing and mental health services that looks like giving people rides that looks like making sure people have groceries um supporting people in navigating their day-to-day -day without loved ones who used to be there and play roles of support um and i think there's there's also um an important question for us as organizers and as abolitionists about how we are shifting the conditions so that these types of harm and violence aren't continuing to occur. So on like on the small scale, I think, well, it's not small scale, but I think the one of the examples that um, I saw in the process of living in the Bay, I live in Philadelphia now, but I used to live in Oakland, um, was after the murder of Kenneth Harding Jr., who was a young person who was riding the bus and in the bay the in san francisco the cops come onto the muni transit system to make sure everyone is paid he hadn't paid he ran off the bus he got shot down in broad daylight by police over a two dollar bus ticket um and there was so much youth organizing and community organizing that happened in response to that that ended up winning um young folks low-income young folks across the city 
free transit passes so that there wasn't that opportunity for police to reach into the community and cause harm, harassment, or like bring trauma or violence onto poor young people who can't afford to pay for the bus. Um, and so I think there's there's that step. And then as we're thinking about how we continue to organize to chip away at policing, because that does take away a certain level of their access to our young folks. Um, the next step looks like ending contracts with police or private security on public transit. The next thing looks like diverting that money into youth employment and homeless services, because so often um, what the prison industrial complex and what policing is serving to do is snatch up the things that are happening that people don't want to see and disappear it into a cage. Um, and I think, yes, we don't want to see killer cops. We don't want to see um, more police murders and violence. And we have seen that for the few police that have been fired for the few police that have been locked up it's for shorter sentences because we know that the institution of policing is and the prison industrial complex as a whole is not going to work against itself to the place where it's actually going to be corrected. Um, we know that these systems are functioning as they were designed to. And so we can't depend on the systems of policing and imprisonment and courts to actually bring us justice to actually bring us accountability because we know the police are not accountable to the communities where they are murdering us. We know that's not the case. They are accountable to those in power who their job is to maintain the status quo, to maintain the conditions that exist and to quell the dissent and pursuit of self-determination that we are all fighting for. And so when we're calling to put cops into the cages that we are also trying to tear down, we need to make a moment for ourselves to um, to reassess and redefine what justice and what safety and what accountability looks like for us. I really do want to lift up the resources that Woods already mentioned. I'm also going to do a shameless plug of Fumbling Towards Repair, which was um, put together by Marion Kaba and Shira Hassan. I think it's um, a really great place to read and learn more about what practices of um, transformative justice, of what community accountability can look like. Um, and I think until we get to those giant solutions, we need to start practicing these things on a smaller scale with one another and how we're dealing with conflict. Um, yeah, and, and I think there's like accountability looks like a lot more than putting a person in a cage. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Kamal. Um, I want to open up to other people, but I, I do want to say something here, just moderator prerogative for a minute. Um, there was another question that was asked about how do we lend solidarity to families who have lost loved ones to police violence and who call for prosecuting the cops. So I think two things. Kamal mentioned several concrete examples of how we can support people. There's so many ways. You know, people step up and raise money for families so that they can, you know, get trauma uh, treatment for themselves and their children. People do grocery shopping. People do any number of things. And I think where people get confused is that we have to endorse people's decisions because harm has occurred. No, what our job is, is to accompany people as they make their decisions about what they want and need. But we don't have to 
we don't have to like agree with their decisions. And we also don't have to necessarily then also be amplifying those decisions. And I think this is where a lot of people get um, confused about abolition. It's a flexible practice, which is definitely contingent upon you know, social conditions and communal needs, and but it is based on a set of core principles, right? And I think we, you know, Rachel Herzing says this all the time. She's right. Everyone doesn't have to be an abolitionist. Like this is not, an, uh, this is not like an evangelist church situation. Everyone doesn't have to be an abolitionist. But if you do declare yourself to be one, then you're committing to, some basic obligations, including some kind of basic principles. And one of the key principles of being an abolitionist is PIC abolition, as I mentioned at the beginning, it calls for the elimination of policing, imprisonment, and surveillance. It rejects the expansion in the scope and the legitimation of all aspects of the prison industrial complex which includes surveillance and policing and sentencing in the courts and all these things, it rejects that. It refuses premature death and it refuses organized abandonment as Ruti talks about a lot, uh, which are basically the state's modes of reprisal and punishment. The state's mode of reprisal and punishment is premature death and organized abandonment. As abolitionists, we reject those things. We refuse those things. PIC abolition as a framework refuses those things. So this is why, it, to me, it's not some sort of like um, uh, a conflicting situation about what do we do about killer cops. If you're an abolitionist, we don't advocate them going to prison, right? Everybody knows the, the chant that everybody says, and you know, if you've been to any protest in any city, what do you always hear? You hear that chant that is constantly, uh, you know, comes people who are organizing, they, there's, you know, indict, convict, send the killer cops to jail. The whole damn system is guilty as hell, right? That part. I'm just going to say that as an abolitionist, you reject that first part about to indict, convict, send the killer cops to jail for the second part, which is the whole damn system is guilty as hell. But what we end up doing is constantly getting stuck in the first part of the chant as though that's safety and justice without really paying close attention to the second part of the, the chant about the whole damn system being guilty as hell. If the whole damn system is guilty as hell, how the hell are we going to indict, convict, and send the killer cops to jail? The system will not indict itself. So I find like that it's not actually hard to figure out how to support people. You're a human being. You can support anybody. But the issue is whether or not you then are your values and the principles and the politic that you believe in, right, is actually going to spend time working very, very hard on that first part of the chant. And my bottom line is there are a lot of people already working on the indict, convict, send the killer cop to jail front. Like you don't need to be adding to that. You know, there are like every single person out there is calling for that right now. So why not then focus on the whole damn system is guilty as hell part. Right. And I think, I think this is really, really important. This is really important. And it, it keeps us kind of, it, you, you have to keep, it is not, you know, I'm, I have been conflicted 
and, and challenged by abolition because I have feelings like everybody else because I'm a human being and I want vengeance. <laughs> when bad stuff happens to me, I too want to strike back and punch somebody upside the head, you know? But there is something about the values that you decide to abide by uh, that actually, you know, makes it not easy to actually be, uh, it, you know, using this framework and this politic and this way and this ideology and this way of thought and action. So I just think that's important for us to put out there. Um, is there anybody else want to say anything before we move on to the next question? Is everybody, Dean Woods, y'all want to say anything or should I move on? I'm going to move on to the next question. Um, there's a question here about um, connecting our work to the uh, military industrial complex. Um, and let me see if I can find it. Yeah. So it says, how do we link our efforts towards the abolition of the PAC and the abolition of the military industrial complex? And I'm going to have Dean speak to that because that's been a big part of Dean's work. So, yeah. Thanks for this. This is such an important question. I think um, one one way I think about what we're doing in this conversation is we're talking about like what is abolitionist discernment? Like it's a type of practice we have together, discerning um, whether something is steps towards where we're going or not. And so we want to abolish the U.S. military, just like we want to abolish um, prisons, policing, prosecution, um, the entire system of criminalization. And we also want to abolish the border, right? So these three um, big heavily developed, well-funded, with great PR systems that, um, that are so deeply, deeply, deeply destructive um, uh, to the environment, to people, to the world. Um, and so I think about the way we link them in a number of ways. One, one thing is I just want to say, like, um, we notice the shared PR strategies they're using in both. So like, the NYPD has got cop cars with rainbow flags on it. And the U.S. military is like, oh, look, we let gay people serve or we're going to let trans people serve. Like the, the framework of pinkwashing is useful or um, other PR strategies um, that these all these institutions are using. Of course, I mean, the U.S. police are a military. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's all one thing, even though they like to think of, um, have us think of them as separate pockets. Um, so one thing we can do is notice the shared strategies of all these. A huge strategy of the military, of the police, of ICE, et cetera, is to, is to say it includes our people, is to say that we all work there too. If we just hire a trans cop, if we could just hire cops of color, you know, that those would become fair systems. And to be able to see through that together. Um, to see through the propaganda, to name the propaganda. Um, here in Seattle, the police have these like rainbow stickers that, that say that we'll, that businesses put on their doors and say, we'll call the cops for you when you come. Um, you know, people have been opposing that for a long time and saying, we want businesses to promise they won't call the cops not to put this rainbow police shield in their window. So all of that kind of um, abolition discernment also applies to the U.S. military. Um, you know, part of this too is like, right now there's this conversation about whether military bases that are named after Confederate um uh, soldiers should be changed. And I think it's so important for us who are abolitionists to say they should be closed. All of the bases should be closed, right? That, that, that reframe is just so important again and again. Um, uh, obviously we're against things being named after Confederate leaders, but we also are against having military bases. We want not just symbolic change, we want material change. Um, I also just want to name, um, uh, the Deadly Exchange Campaign, which is a campaign um, that's been happening in lots of cities all over the U.S. and is um, headed by Jewish Voice for Peace at the national level. Um, and it's a campaign to stop these um, 
kind of worst practices exchanges where U.S. Um, police and ICE um, and other law enforcement go and train um, in Israel with uh, the Israeli military and law enforcement. And that campaign is so useful because it internationalizes our understanding of police violence and helps us figure out what it looks like to have deep solidarity for people all over the world affected by these same kinds of border and policing and militarized technologies, um, right? The same companies that are building, you know, border walls um, in, in different countries that are arming police with um, tear gas and um, other weapons. And so um, that deadly exchange campaign, I think, is an example of some of this work to like tie, um, uh, to, to help us take our domestic politics of things that are happening in our own cities um, where we're, we oppose policing and help it help us link that to, um, to all the co- complex ties that the PIC has around the world um, that, are, that are about militarism. I finally want to just plug this newish group called Dissenters. It's a group that's really trying to build a youth-led anti-war movement with campus groups and, and primarily training youth of color um, to be campus leaders and um, community leaders for anti-militarism work. We have a lot to do to rehab the anti-war movement here in the United States. Um, it's uh, essential, right? And it's an essential part of all the work we're doing to oppose violence and racism and imperialism. And so I just want to encourage people to check out Dissenters. Um, and finally, I just want to say one other tiny thing that just k- came to my mind mind as listening to the other folks. Um, I don't know if people have been seeing the stories going around about the Camden Police Department and how the Camden Police Department, Camden, New Jersey, um, they defunded or they dismantled their police department um, and how this should be a model for what our defund and dismantled demands look like. And it's like, if you read any of the articles about it, actually, they just then recreated the police department with a different name. And they hired back like 100 of the same cops. And like, I just think that's the danger right now. Like, that's the exact danger, similar to what Miriam showed earlier with the um, San Jose PD, like saying that they're so proud of themselves for meeting those eight can't wait um, criteria while they still go on to kill people. Like we, this is just a pivotal moment for this kind of abolitionist discernment. And I think it's also true in our opposition to U.S. militarism because the U.S. military has also been having some serious legitimacy crises um, in recent years with the sexual assault scandals and with all the leaks about the, the levels of, um, of, of war crimes engaged by the U.S. military. It's a, it's a constant scandal and a constant crisis of legitimacy. And you know, Ruth Gilmore and Craig Gilmore in their article in that book I mentioned earlier, Policing the Planet, they talk about how in the history of legitimacy crises crises of U.S. police, what happens after the legitimacy crisis, you know, brought on by huge protest movements and, um, and social movements, what happens after usually is that the police actually increase in number and expand their reach into the community. So now they're in our schools and now they're homeless outreach workers, right? And so I think we have to just keep asking that question. Like, it's so important to cause the legitimacy crisis, but we haven't yet seen it turn into an actual erasure uh, shrinking elimination that we want, right? We need to have that high vision instead of just a repackaging, either under community policing or under some other new name. Um, and that's, I think, what um, all the speakers here are helping us think through so deeply is like, how do we actually assess that together and not kind of get, you know, um, side, uh, um, you know, sent on an off ramp um, into some new version of the same thing that's often actually more supportive afterwards. 
Thank you, Dean. I would just definitely second looking at dissenters and um, and very explicitly, some of the co-founders of dissenters are abolitionists, PIC abolitionists uh, as well, and have done work on policing issues, anti-policing issues, particularly in Chicago, and are bringing this, this lens. And I think when we're talking about a defund police uh, strategy and a defund police demand, we mean policing. And I think this is very important. It's not just the police, it's policing. And if you think about the military as policing the world globally, particularly harming groups of black and brown people, once again, the key people that are getting bombed on a regular basis and harmed on a regular basis and sexually assaulted by our military on a regular basis. We have to see these connections between what's happening globally and what's happening here. And our demand is a broad one. You know, we are wanting to defund police, but we're also wanting to defund ICE, which is law enforcement, which is police, ing, you know, so I think I want people, I want to challenge us to really broaden our frame and to understand that all of these things that we're talking about are interconnected um, and that they, that without having attention placed on those things, those things will continue to be barriers in the way of what we're trying to achieve and get towards. We have to move them out of the way if we're going to be able to get to where we need to go. And um, there's a question here about, oh, Woods looks like he wanted to jump in. There's a question here about capitalism. Uh, And the answer is, yes, of course, we want to end capitalism. You got to be anti-capitalist to be an abolitionist. This is not this is not hard to think about, but um, Woods, I'm going to let you speak. And then, yeah. So, Miriam, I just wanted to, I was actually going to be on what you were talking about it, that also, um, in addition to um, Deadly Exchange and the work that the dissenters are doing, um, that we can also focus on um, these uh like training programs um, that happen around the, the country. Um, so the through line, um, the sort of reflexive through line between um, the U.S. military and um, local police departments and their um, the ways in which they exchange um, tactics and tools and, um, and coordination um, can are sometimes like coalesce in um, specific trainings around the country, such as um, Urban Shield, which is um, which was a was a training that um, CR was like fighting from twenty I think twenty fifteen um, until twenty nineteen, um, and um, and so we literally because of uh, we could apply that internationalist uh, politic to this work and an understanding of fighting policing, whether it be locally, statewide, military, internationally, um, we were able to um, work in coalition with groups like um, Arab Resource Organizing Center, Takana Moratorium Coalition, um, JVP as um, American Friends Service Committee, Filipino orgs like Bayan and Gabriella, and um, come together um, with that analysis in order to um, ultimately defeat that. Um, and that that's something that um, if, if, if you are looking to do that kind of work, you can see about like if there are is, is a local training that's um, similar um, and organized around that to shut that down. 
Wonderful. Thank you. Um, it looks like we're just, we just decided to get into the Q&A. So I think we're just going to continue on this point. There are lots of really good questions that people are putting, um, that are being sent to us. So somebody mentioned, can the speakers discuss the Minneapolis City Council's decision to defund the NPD? Um, and how we can push this to be an abolitionist reform and not a reformist reform. Um, I think the decision is to dismantle the MPD, not necessarily to defund it right now. But, um, but yeah, anybody want to jump in on that question about Minneapolis and maybe what you're seeing? Um, you know, what are some concerns that you're thinking about? What are opportunities that you're seeing in, in the work that's happening over there on the ground? would like to jump in on that. Kamau? Yeah, I can I can jump in. Um, yeah, so yes, yeah, shout out to the Black Visions Collective, some some brilliant, brilliant melanated people in the Midwest. Um, so I think what what's important to be named about the the move to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department is that there was a lot of organizing that led up to this moment. Um, two years ago, the Black Visions Collective won, um, I think it was called the Office of Violence Prevention, won resources and funding for an Office of Violence Prevention in Minneapolis. Um, and even before the murder of George Floyd, they were doing a lot of organizing around the city budget seeing that there was an increase to police funding in the midst of a pandemic, and we're really pushing to move more resources towards community need and not increase policing. Um, and I think when we're, when we're talking about how to make sure this is an abolitionist reform and not a reformist reform, we defer back to the policing chart from critical resistance. We defer back to aid to abolition. Um, we refer back to the work of Miriam Kaba and Rachel Herzing and lots of brilliant and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and all kinds of brilliant abolitionists who have been writing and strategizing and thinking about this work long before this political moment. Um, I think some of the strengths that are already laid out for the Black Visions Collective is that folks have been organizing there for a while. They've been building community. They've been developing a shared politics. They are in coalition with a lot of other community organizations. Um, and they, they are growing and sharpening and have been doing for years a, a shaping and development of their abolitionist politic. Um, and I think when we're talking about the prison industrial complex in Minneapolis, or anywhere, um, keyword is complex. It shapeshifts, it transforms, it goes from a whole new prison to a women's gender responsive prison. It goes from police brutality to community controlled policing where we're building community listening sessions and we're you know, wearing body cameras. Um, I think one thing that folks in Minneapolis already know because um, the 21st century policing reforms and funding, a lot of that was put into the police in Minneapolis. They already know a lot of what hasn't worked. I think some of the things that could possibly show up there are things like, um, like increased surveillance, um, like facial recognition software, increased cameras in, in public spaces. And there is like more of a trend of talking about like predictive technology 
to to think about how to respond to harm and violence. Um, but I think they also have a clear idea of different community organizations of programs that have been under resourced in their community that need a lot more investment um, and that have proven to support communities. And I think when we're talking about abolition, one of the core tenets of abolition in addition to the dismantling of the prison industrial complex is building up the healthy, safe communities that we need. So what are the resources that our folks need in order to stabilize our communities? Um, so we know we need affordable housing. We know we need meaningful work with living wages. We know young people need more investment in their education, like a more well-rounded education, access to quality food. Um, and so I think they are continuing to, to dig into what the actual community needs are. Um, and as long as this process of dismantling and resourcing that funding back into community is controlled by the community, I think there's a lot of opportunity to help reshape what public safety in Minneapolis looks like. And the organizing piece of it is the most important piece um, and listening to and learning from communities. Um, like it's it's so important when we're talking about abolition that we're learning from and politicizing the ways that marginalized people are surviving under capitalism and the prison industrial complex. So if we're learning from black trans women, from undocumented folks, from sex workers, from people with disabilities, from folks of color, um, we will see the ways that folks are practicing collective community safety, um, and we will see what their needs are in order to do that in a way that increases their health and safety more broadly. Um, and so with with the idea of like the fact that we keep us safe, I think um, Black Visions Collective and the folks in Minneapolis more broadly are moving to resource themselves to keep each other safe. Thank you, Kamal. I want to say also something about just following up this with Miriam talking about um, Minneapolis. There were uh, several um, organizers on the ground have um, asked skeptical abolitionists to remain skeptical, but also to jump in to supporting the folks in Minneapolis to creating a police-free world. As Kamal said, all of this work didn't just come out of nowhere. There have been people on the ground in Minneapolis doing this work, tilling soil so that when the rebellion came and the spark literally was lit, there were already some things in place that people could mobilize pretty quickly and organize themselves around to push further than they've been able to push before. And one of the things that I, you know, have found difficult over the years is that particularly those of us who um, identify as leftist or whatever is the, you know, we're rightly skeptical of everything and we're rightly critical of everything, but we have to be engaged in the building of the things we want as much um, as on the dismantling of the things we don't want. So there've been lots of calls from local organizers in Minneapolis to support them in various kinds of ways, particularly for abolitionists to support in various kinds of ways. I hope people will take them up on that. Um, Jay uh, Hyun Shim just wrote a piece published today in Truth Out talking about 
uh, the title of it, if people can find it, is Minneapolis organizers are already building the tools for safety without police. I encourage people to read that piece. And then I encourage us to move ahead and actually do the thing, which is take the risks and um, actualize and actually implement our visions. We really need many more people right now to be building the things we want. And that means you're going to be in a position where a lot of people will be able to attack you for it because nobody's going to be doing it perfectly. But even with that, I think we need more courageous, fearless people who are willing to try things, to experiment, um, knowing full well we're going to fail. That's part of life. Um, I think we should not be afraid of failure. Failure is actually an opportunity for lessons that we learn to improve in the future. So I just want to put that out there because I think that we can get caught up and, and, and stuck on just the, the undoing and the dismantling and all of this other kind of stuff. I think it's really important. Um, I think it's really important. Um, so anybody want to say anything about the capitalism question? I mean, I already said, of course, you have to be anti-capitalist, but is there anything else that folks want to um, add to on that? Okay. If that comes to you, please do. Um, there is a question here about what is the abolitionist response to people who ask, who do you call when there are mass shootings or bomb threats or any other extreme situations? I'm going to put um, Dean on uh, on blast to answer this question. Dean? <laughs> Just because it's too painful for us not all not to say a million things about capitalism because we all have it. Um, so I'll just say briefly <laughs> that like, obviously the point of the police is to, uh, and the military is to try to, to stabilize and maintain an absolutely ridiculous distribution of wealth in, and violence in the world, right? Like you need to have standing armies everywhere. If you're going to have people living in this much extreme suffering while a very, very tiny amount of people, you know, control all the land, wealth and food and transportation and whatever. So yeah, if we get rid of the police, we might get <laughs> it's a key part of getting closer to the drastic changes we want in terms of actually people being able to have what they want and need and um, co-steward um, the resources that we all need to live. Um, and I think also in the more immediate piece, it's like, if we want anti-capitalism, it means not having, not being taxed to build giant police bunkers. I mean, you know, like that, like we actually want resources in our communities to go towards things people want and need like healthcare and childcare. Um, but anyway, on the question of the mass shooter, um, part, I think this goes in the category of like, what about the dangerous people, which is like one of the most common questions that abolitionists face. And I just want to like remind us that one, Right now, the most dangerous people, the most dangerous guns out there are all in the hands of police and soldiers, right? Like the, the mass shooter is the police, right? The, 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 the idea that, we, we, that police violence and military violence and ICE violence become invisible and we only think about other forms of violence as dangerous is part of the, the mirage of living um, in a police state. Um, and I think the second thing is we can really ask, like, why have we, why do we have this kind of violence in our culture, right? Like living in a highly militarized, deeply patriarchal white supremacist culture produces 
the kinds of violence that we are all so rightly terrified of. It's not surprising that every time there's a mass shooting, we're like, oh, this person who was the mass shooter has a record of domestic violence and is, loves white supremacy and loves, you know, patriarchal, horrible ideas. Like these things go together. And so if we dismantle, uh, you know, I have actually been really delighted to see like the, that, that show Cops was canceled and others of these police propaganda television shows. We also need like the narrative ones like Law and Order that are on like 24 hours a day to be canceled. Like that we need to like shift our society away from one in which um, we uh, valorize as the way to feel powerful being like a gun-toting dominator. That is the story. And then a lot of people who feel powerless for a lot of reasons... Um, seek their power that way. And that's all about the fragility of white masculinity and many other things. But I just think it's important to shift that. And finally, I'll say on the kind of practical level, people are like, okay, but if we really get rid of police, who will we call in this or that situation? And so many communities have already not relied on the police for so long in the history of the US since the police forces are bring more danger than anything else. And so that's all the work that people on this call are doing, right? Like that Oakland Power Projects is such a great example that many of us are looking to where it's like, oh, wait, we want to be able to figure out how do people access healthcare when they can't call 911 because ambulances bring police, right? And so people are like, oh, well, we, what can we do to train up our communities to respond um, to mental health emergencies or acute other health emergencies. And, you know, the all the work that Miriam has done, and I really want to recommend um, her website and others that have worked on that website, transformharm.org, is full of all the information about, wow, how can we solve um, intimate partner violence and um, domestic violence and gender violence uh, not using the police? Um, so I think it, it is, a, you know, and someone wrote on the YouTube chat also, like, what do we do about white supremacist, violent white supremacists? Well, there actually are tons of people who are organizing to to stop their marches, right? People who are doing anti-fascist work in the United States to show up when the, when the fascists are marching and when the white supremacists are marching and try to stop them. Like we can, there are tons of community responses to every kind of um, thing we fear. And the question is just, can we actually like wipe away this illusion that we need the police and the military to do these things in the world to keep us safe when really they're making us so much less safe? And instead say, wow, well, what would be a good way to solve that? What would, what would be a good way to prevent that from happening? And then also, if that type of harm or violence comes up, what would be a good way um, to solve it? And I think that there's, there's just unending answers to that because people are doing so much work on it. So if you're watching this and you're like, how do I find that out? Like, I would recommend like using the internet, start with Miriam's pages because she really collects a lot of that information and, and, and redistributes it to all of us. But there's just, um, there's, we, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There is deep, deep thinking that's been going on for a very, very long time about how to do this. And there's room for new creative thinking as well. Um, but it, it's just essential to kind of move away from the idea that there are these certain types of violence or danger for which we need the police or military. Um, it's just not the case. Thank you, Dean. Uh, we're going to end with this last question. I, you know, we can go on and on. I know there are so many questions about police unions and about all, but there's a question here that's been repeated several times, which is, would love to hear about how to practice abolitionist social work and how to resist mandated reporting. Um, Kay is a social worker. I don't know if we should out you, but there you are. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you can speak to this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm a macro social worker. So that means that I'm mainly working on organizing and policy. And I don't have the typical or the stereotypical one-on-one -on -one client relationship. Um, 
But I mean, there's this question about mandated reporting. There's so many people saying, well, why don't you just replace cops with social workers or social workers are better equipped to handle um, harm and conflict. And I really bought into this idea. In fact, I wrote about it in my essay to, uh, to get into my MSW program. But through learning more about the history of social work and also interacting with my classmates, calls to replace the cops with social workers without um, having an understanding of how social work functions in most communities are going to get us back to square one. I really liked what Kamau said just about how the PIC is always um, kind of like moving and like shifting and repurposing. And that's kind of what happens when we think about social workers. Because in a lot of communities, social workers do represent the cops for people. Um, they do function as the cops. They separate people from families or they, um, they report families or they only provide accountability through coercive ways. And uh, they often function as the state. So I think any call to replace cops with social workers needs to be rooted in, first of all, redefining safety, redefining what it means to be safe, and then also realizing that a lot of the tools that social workers or psychologists or therapists have are tools that are already being built within community, um, without academia and without licensure. And so that doesn't mean that I think that all social workers are bad or that in some places that a social worker would have been a better solution than a cop, but it just means that if we replace one system with another without analyzing the roots, we're just going to be back at square one. And then as for mandated reporting, I'm probably legally limited to what I can say on this huge webinar, but I will say that there are a lot of people who are doing work around this. Um, and I think it just comes back to creating community systems and putting things in place um, before harm even occurs. Um, I talk a lot about pod mapping, but just utilizing tools that people have um, to make sure that community is in place before harm happens is always helpful. And I also know that we live in a world where that's not always the case and these things are really messy. And sometimes we have to fight against our personal ethics and our career ethics um, and our personal politics and holding a job. But I will say that there are a lot of abolitionist social workers out there who are working to redefine social work and who are also working to support families without emphasizing mandated reporting or turning over their clients to the cops. And I think that we have to be a little more imaginative, imaginative when we're asking for calls um, for social workers to replace cops. Thank you all so much for all of your brilliance and everything that you have shared here uh, today. There's just so, so much more we can be talking about. Um, and I think, um, Woods, did you wanna make that point about police unions before we, I start closing out? Yeah, I can say it really quickly. I said we can, like, the question on police unions is we can put, like, in responses, we can push decision makers to reject funding from police unions um, to, like, enforce them to disavow the platform of the union. Um, and um, that, I mean, there's an example of this, the president, the president of the Colorado Senate recently would, like, um, did this. Um, and so this can like effectively start to isolate the unions from those who negotiate the, they negotiate their contracts with. Um, and we should struggle with um, labor unions that we're in 
um, we're networked with or organizing with to reject uh, police unions as valid. Um, I think a great intervention to start with would be lifting up the history of uh, police unions in union, uh, police in union busting. Um, so that's like my sort of initial response to that question. Just wanted to throw that in before. I <laughs> Thank you so much. That's really helpful. So um, I just want to end uh, with a couple of things um, that keep us to get us off to a good start. As I mentioned, I like to start on time and end on time. Um, so first, uh, can you, John, can you put a slide up here? I uh, just want to let folks know that um, we already included in the Eventbrite some links to some of these things and others are not there. But I want to um, offer that we have that um, several of us have worked on a new resource. Um, in 2014, when I wrote a blog post in a very short time called Police Reforms You Should Always Oppose, I offered a set of questions, to, again, to assess um, whether a reform would further entrench the status quo or whether it had the potential to be part of abolitionist organizing. One of the proposals that I included as one that could potentially be part of an abolitionist organizing strategy was civilian review boards. And I added in caps with serious caveats because I really wanted to like not just lift it up as a thing on its own, but like there were ser serious caveats to that idea that I've often be th been thinking about. So over the past few years, I and several others have been discussing and thinking about civilian review boards from an abolitionist perspective. And we just put out this week some of our thinking in a document. Um, and I encourage those interested to review it, to discuss it in your own communities. For those who registered via Eventbrite, you already received a copy of the PDF, um, and um, but I'll send it out again after, through Eventbrite after this event. Um, so please take a look at it. Uh, again, using the questions that we offered about thinking about whether particular reforms are recuperative or, or liberatory, you can think about uh, civilian review boards within that frame as well uh, to come up with decisions that make sense to you. The second is that a group of educators um, and abolitionist educators uh, came up with a new document just this week about um, organizing to get cops off your campuses if you're a college or university person and they have eight specific actions to take abolitionist action on your campus um, and that document uh, there's a, a uh, we're posting the slides should have some uh, information about the link where you can find that but you can also expect that I'll send that out in the email that I sent out afterwards um, from this don't forget to join CR tomorrow. Um, there's a flyer, there should be slides up for that. And there's a link also that people can go to, which is bit.ly abolition 2020. Uh, there's a great event happening on June 16th about abolition uh, organizing and education in the schools. And um, finally, on um, Monday, uh, Interrupting Criminalization and the Movement for Black Lives will be putting out a defund police toolkit. So keep your eyes out for that. Um, there'll be more information and I'll make sure I share it if, on social media so people can know where that is as well. Um, and uh, want to make sure to thank again our interpreters who have been stellar, our ca a live captioner who's been stellar for this whole 
time as well. Um, in the YouTube chat, that we've dropped the links to their uh, ways that um, you could reach out to them. But also, if you want to tip them, sending them a cash app or Venmo or PayPal way of just letting them know how much we appreciate them and their time. You can do that. And we would, uh, you know, I know they would appreciate that as well. Um, and the last thing I want to say is that what we were trying to do with this conversation today was to try to really make sure that we continue to have these conversations broadly to get clarity, to be grounded in our uh, thinking, to be grounded in our analysis, to realize that sometimes we do have to just hold the line on certain things. It's not, you know, there's a consistent push for everybody all the time to say, you've got to be pragmatic. You've got to be practical. You've got, you know what? Sometimes pragmatism is just re-entrenching oppression. And it is just keeping the status quo going. So in this moment where there's a possibility for some bold demands, we always have to hold true to the horizon that we're trying to reach, to abolition as the horizon. And we're going to have to figure out how we get from where we are to where we want to go. And that means we have to figure out strategies that are going to chip away at the prison industrial complex as a whole, not just policing, not just prisons, not just surveillance, not just the apparatuses of these death-making institutions. We are going to have to figure out ways of doing that. It isn't enough to just scream out a slogan. Okay? That's a slogan is not a strategy to win. We have got to figure out how we are going to actually implement these steps that are going to take us from where we are to where we want to go without being in a position where we have to come back in five years to tear down the very thing that we've put in place. So I hope that everybody who listened today feels like you got something positive out of this conversation. I hope you will continue the conversation in your communities. I hope you will take the resources that are being created and made and just adapt it, use it. The beautiful example of eight to abolition that made this wonderful intervention just in an organic way over 24 hours that is circulated worldwide shows us that we have incredible power right now to be able to shift ideas, shift the culture and make real transformative change. I hope that everybody will join in doing that. So, so happy to be able to have this conversation. So incredibly grateful to every single person who was on this call, to Kay, to uh, Dean, to Kamau, to Woods for taking time out to do this. Again, to our interpreting team and to the folks from Critical Resistance who hold held us down from the back end, Mohammed, Jess, Jay, and especially also um, uh, uh, John from Haymarket, who's also made the live stream happen. Thank you all. Hopefully we won't see you again soon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Like literally, I just want to go and be a hermit. That's really what I want to do. I don't like people. This is a fact. Everybody knows it. But we're still going to be here fighting till we win. So thank you all for joining us today. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget 
to check out haymarketbooks.org. 